You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, TFC. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Luke 18, 15 through 17. And if uh, you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat pocket of the chair in front of you, or you can steal one from your next door neighbor here. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't don't steal, especially in church. Um, But you're going to need the word of God for what we do today, okay? And the Lord in his providence has brought us to Luke 18, 15 through 17, as we simply make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. This is where the Lord in his providence has brought us and what he speaks to us this morning. And so let's start by reading the text, okay? Let's start by reading it. Luke 18, 15 through 17. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What an incredible passage. Now, what we're seeing here, make note of it, is that Jesus is making clear the condition for conversion. Jesus is making clear the condition for conversion, which is why I've entitled the message, the what? Condition for conversion. And so Jesus is making this clear. He is making clear the requirement for regeneration. He's communicating what's necessary for new birth. He's communicating what the sinner must do in order to receive salvation. Jesus is making this condition clear, and the condition is childlike faith. Childlike faith. Without this childlike faith, no one can be saved. That's the point of this literary unit. That's where all of the information is pointing us to in this unit. That's what the doctrine or the teaching that's being made known here is from God himself. So without this childlike faith, no one can be saved. Now to be clear... This isn't the only condition that Jesus gives in order for someone to be saved. He's given a a, a list of conditions through his ministry. In fact, if you look down at your text from Luke chapter 18, verse 9, which was what we just covered last week, through Luke chapter 18, verse 30, which is what we'll finish in a couple of weeks, Jesus gives this series of conditions for conversion. Luke 18.9 through Luke 18.30, a series of conditions for conversion. He's just hitting them one after the other. And then listen, now, if you look down at your text from 18.31 
through 1834, he kind of interrupts this series of conditions for conversions, and he tells about his death and his what? Resurrection. He interrupts this series of conditions for conversion to speak about his death and his resurrection. And then what's going to happen at 1835 and following, he's going to pick right back up. And he's going to give another series of conditions for conversion all the way until chapter 19, verse 28, when he enters Jerusalem and his journey to Jerusalem is over. So he's series of conditions for conversion, interruption, death and resurrection, another series of conditions for salvation or conversion, and then he enters Jerusalem and we begin the passion texts. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's been giving a list of what it, what's required in order to be saved. And we're in the second condition in this first list. That's where we sit today. And so what has he said? Listen, the first thing he said was last week, we saw with Pastor Josh pointing us to the fact that the first condition in, in, in verses 9 through 14, right before we get to the text of where we are today, Jesus has made clear that a sinner is saved by mercy and not merit. That's how you could summarize the first condition. Mercy, not what? Merit. That's what he says. Listen, last week we saw this one man judges his righteousness based upon his comparison of himself to other people. That's how he assesses his righteousness. And he believes that his religious works are good enough to make him right before God, right? While the other man, he judges his lack of righteousness by his comparison, by the comparison of himself to who? To God, right? This is how the, the second man judges his, his righteousness. He won't even look up. Remember this? He, he won't even look up. He, he won't even stand close to God. He's standing far off because his assessment of his own righteousness is compared to God, not compared to others. He doesn't look around and say, I'm, I'm a little bit better than those people. Therefore, I must be right before God. He looks at God in his holiness and then judges himself rightly. That's true humility. Humility as, is seeing yourself rightly. It's not just thinking lower of yourself. It's seeing yourself rightly in comparison to God. That's what the second man does. That's why it says the humble will be exalted. Those who see themselves rightly in comparison to God, repent, trust in Christ as the only condition or merit for salvation will be exalted, will go to heaven. It's pretty simple. And so while the first man uses others as the standard, the second man uses God as the standard, and he cries out for the only possible option for salvation, and that is what? Mercy. I need mercy, right? This is how someone is justified. This is how someone will be exalted into heaven. This is how someone will be right before God, by seeing themselves rightly in comparison to God, realizing their sinful condition, that they fall short, that they deserve divine judgment, and that their only hope is God's divine mercy in Jesus Christ. That's the only way someone is made right before God. You get it? No merit, only mercy. The second condition that we see then here, and I'm just gonna take you through these four briefly. They're not up on the screen but just, you can make note of them. But these other ones, we're going to talk about the one that I'm about to mention today, and then we're going to talk about the other two in the next couple of weeks. But the second thing, we begin with mercy, not merit. And now the second thing is that the sinner must have an attitude that they make no contribution, but that salvation, salvation is consigned to them. It is a gift, right? They make no contribution. It is a gift that comes through complete trust, or you could say childlike faith, right? Through complete trust, you make no contribution to salvation. You must understand if you're, if you're to be saved, that it comes through a complete trust in the person and work of Christ, that you don't make any contribution to this. 
That's what defines someone who is born again and someone who's not. There's a thin line there to where complete, you completely trust in the merit of Christ alone for salvation. You make no contribution. It is a gift that's given through complete trust in Christ. And we're going to see that today. And we see that in these verses, verses 15 through 17. So mercy, not merit, no contribution, childlike faith. And then the third thing that we're going to see, which is next week, is that it must come, salvation must come from rejecting all other leadership in your life and coming under the lordship of Christ. Mercy, not merit. No contribution, complete trust. No other leadership under the lordship of Christ. This is important. Money is not to be what you serve. Your material possessions, riches, is not the thing that you live for. Your, your status in this world is not what guides your decision-making. Your possessions are not your God. Anything else, relationships, work, social status, your friends, popularity, and because we have kids in the room, toys, right? Or adults too, your toys. You are to give up all other things for Christ, and that's the evidence that you believe. If you believe he's Lord, you're giving up everything to come under his submission because he's God and you know it. Right? That's the idea here. If anyone is to be born again, Jesus must become their Lord. He must hold the authoritative position of leadership in their lives. And someone in, who enters into this kingdom will follow Jesus' leadership continually. He will have ultimate control by the authority of his word. And it's evidence that you believe by following Christ supremely in your life. So that's the third rejecting all other leadership and submitting to his lordship. And now finally, and finally, the fourth reality of salvation or condition is that this cannot be obtained by the sinner's strength. It must happen through a supernatural divine work of God. That's the four conditions all the way up until 1830 when he interrupts it with his death and resurrection. And what he means by this last point, which you can really see at the end of, uh, you know, verse 26 on following, is that he says this, this fourth aspect, that a spiritually dead, totally depraved person who loves their sin will not be able to come alive to their sin, turn from their sin, repent of their sin, and trust in Christ without a supernatural work of divine grace. They've got to, God's got to open your eyes. Some, sometimes uh, the gospel couldn't be more clear. And you have people who sit and it just glosses right over. Or you try to share with a family member and you try to tell them of the gospel and how to be saved. And you realize really quickly, God must open their what? Eyes and soften their heart or else this has, this will do nothing. This is, has to be a work of divine mercy. And so those are the four conditions that we're going to see. We've already seen one of them. Mercy, not merit, no contribution, but consigned through childlike faith. No other leadership, but the lordship of Christ and not by the sinner's strength, but by the supernatural work of God. Jesus is making clear salvation. Now I'm going to preview these points in just a minute. And I'm going to walk you through this text. And so, and it's really simple. These three points that bring us to this main point, all of it shows how this main point arises from the text, the condition for conversion, which is childlike faith. I'm going to show you those three points in a minute and get you to see how this text points us to that reality. But first, I want to tell you how we got here because it's pretty logically easy to see this main point. And then I want to also tell you how important it is to understand what we're going to talk about today. Okay, look at, just note the logical flow of Luke that led us to this point. Back in chapter 17, verse 20, just put your eyes there on, on your own Bible. All the way through Luke 17, verse 37. So Luke 17, 20 through Luke 17, 37. Jesus speaks of his kingdom. 
the present spiritual kingdom, which is, anybody remember? Salvation, right? The present spiritual kingdom is referring to salvation. And then he gives clarity about the future visible kingdom, which is what? Heaven, the second coming. So Jesus, in those instances, are, he's giving clarity about his kingdom, his present spiritual kingdom, salvation, his future visible kingdom, which is his second coming in heaven. Then from Luke 18, 1 through 8, he teaches his disciples to pray for the future kingdom. You should be praying that his kingdom would come, that he would return, right? That's what he talks about. And now, and, he, and when, listen now, when he comes back, when he talks about praying for his future kingdom, when he comes back, you know what he wants to find in his believers? He wants to find them entrusting themselves to God, holding on to their faith, and praying for his coming. That's why he says at the end of that section, well, when the Son of Man comes, is he gonna find faith on the earth? Is he gonna find believers who are praying for his second coming and who are still holding on to their faith. That's what he's praying. That's what Jesus is telling them in 18, one through eight. And then listen now, so clarity about the present kingdom, clarity about the future kingdom, praying for his future kingdom to come. And now here, starting in Luke 18, nine, he teaches on entrance into the kingdom. How does someone enter? How does someone get in? Clarity about the present kingdom. Clarity about the future kingdom. Pray for the future kingdom to come. How does someone get into the kingdom? And that's what he started on last week, that it's mercy, not merit. And this is the second condition that we find ourselves in. Now, let me just tell you before I preview these points and get us through this text, which is very simple. Can I tell you, the fact that Jesus is talking about here how one must enter into salvation this is such an extremely important doctrine. I cannot tell you how important it is for you to understand clearly the Bible's teaching as to how one enters into salvation. There could be no more important doctrine than this. This is so important. Whether you are one who calls himself a Christian or whether you're just curious about it. There could be no more important doctrine. Let me spend just a couple minutes telling you about this. There is so much confusion in the church about what is required to be saved. So much confusion. We fail to understand what the Bible's teaching is on this subject. And can I tell you, as a result, you have churches that are filled with unconverted religious people. Think about it, because we failed to make clear what the conditions are in order to be saved. And that's very sad. And so, and let me tell you this, the, the religious unconverted are the people who we've seen in this gospel of Luke, Jesus has aimed all of his attacks against. Religious unconverted. Religious unconverted. Religious unconverted. Those are the aim of all of Jesus' attacks. Religious unconverted. And by not making clear the doctrine of what is required in order to be saved, we have perpetuated this issue. Romans 10 says this, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to what? Knowledge. For being ignorant, that is not knowing, of the righteousness of God, that's what comes through Christ and is given by God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness, that is the gospel. The church has failed to clearly define what is required in order to be saved. And so there's a lot of confusion. And let me tell you, of course, there's confusion in the world, in the lost world about what it means to be saved, right? Outside the doors of the church, people are blind to the truth, right? Apart from any knowledge of the truth, of course, you would expect that. 
They're blind to what it means to be saved or that they need to be saved, right? The Spirit has to open the eyes. The Word has to enlighten the heart. We need to tell people about their sinful condition, their guilt before God, their need to repent, their trust in Christ in order to be saved. But listen, the problem is compounded when there's people who claim to be part of Christ's church who are ignorant of what the Bible teaches of what is required in order to be saved. That's when we really have a problem. Because here's what happens. People who are then unsaved are comforted all the way to hell. And then the church, here's the second part of the problem, fails to be the church. Because the church, by definition, are those who have been what? Converted. That's the church. That's what actually makes the distinction, is being converted. So now you got a church that's no longer the church because it's filled with converted and unconverted. And then you also have lost people who fail to understand their condition and their need to be saved. What a problem. And it all comes from making this doctrine clear or it being unclear. And so where does this illiteracy come from? Well, listen now, it comes from a lack of clear, accurate biblical teaching about what's required to be saved. And it also comes from uh, and that might come from a, pa- a so-called pastor's superficial knowledge about salvation themselves. But it also comes from f- not wanting to make a distinction between converted and unconverted. And that is seriously unloving. Listen now. Tolerance is labeled as loving and to discriminate as unloving and divisive. But the Bible is discriminatory in its discussion about salvation. It makes distinctions. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's making a distinction. If you don't come into the kingdom like this, you are not in the what? Kingdom. He's making this clear so that lost people know what they need to do to get saved and the church stays the church. Right? Churches have failed to teach people about their sinful condition, their separation from God, God's impending judgment. The fact that you are not part of God's kingdom, church, family, you are actually an enemy of God unless you enter by his conditions. And this has allowed error and falsehood to pervade the church. As a result, we have churches that have zero clarity about who is saved and who isn't saved. And listen, by labeling it as unloving and divisive to make this clear distinction about what's required to be saved, Satan has successfully filled up the churches where the lost people feel saved and they feel considered part of the church. When in fact, the distinction is what makes the church the church. Listen now, it becomes a place where lost people feel saved because they have good thoughts about Jesus because they have been affirmed by leaders, because they compare themselves to others morally, and because they've been allowed to be part of the church, right? And and when that happens, can I tell you what will absolutely happen? The church will become worldly. A church that fails to distinguish between what is required to be saved and, and those who are truly in the kingdom or who, you know, the requirement in order for people to be saved that they're outside the kingdom and, and those who are in the kingdom, it, that church always becomes worldly 100% of the time because they begin to tolerate error and sin from unregenerate people. And it's like the syncretistic place, right? That they don't hold the word of God as the standard. The church becomes worldly. Mark it down. A church that fails to distinguish between the church and the unconverted and what's required to be saved will always be worldly 100% of the time because it, it, it has this mixture, this syncretistic theology, a, a philosophy, right? And so listen, we have to make clear it's what's most loving to the lost and what's most distinguishing for the church, Right? That's what happens. The church is supposed to be a holy, set-apart people who have been converted through Christ's conditions and are being made mature in their faith. And that is different from those who need to understand Christ's conditions, repent of their sins, and enter into the church. We have to make a distinction as to who the church is and who the church is trying to reach. This is 
So vital that you get this. I mean, this will literally set the course of the church until Christ comes back. I mean, this, there could not be a more important doctrine than making this distinction. Making this distinction. And again, because we don't want to be unloving or divisive, we make lost people feel part of the church without giving them the requirements or the conditions in order to be saved. And then this church becomes a very cloudy place where no one knows who's saved and who isn't or what's required and what's, and what's not required. And then this is just a place of, that's tolerating error and sin. I mean, it just, and the church fails to become the church, to, to be the church. I mean, listen, a distinction needs to be made about who is in and who is out, what it means to be in, what's required to be in, what it will look like if you are truly in so that the unconverted can know that they're not in so that they need to decide to get in. And if they don't decide to get in, then they were never in and they will never be able to be in, right? I mean, I'm just coming every which way so you understand this. This text is easy. We'll get to it in a second. Just listen now. The church needs to remain the church. And this is the only way that the lost can become truly saved. For them to know that they're not in what the conditions are to be in and that they have to decide to get in. And so it's, it's not loving, it's deceptive to not give the requirements. You know, we can't always tell the difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved. But can I tell you, Jesus said, you'll know them by their what? fruit. So that's what you ask about when someone wants to become a member of a church. You would assess, has salvation occurred? And then he also tells us what the conditions are, like in the passage today. So can I just tell you this? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The distinction needs to be made. Look what he says here. Do not be unequally yoked with what? Unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with a unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and in the fear of God. Listen, a believer and an unbeliever are not on the same sides in any way. They don't have the same Lord. They don't share the fundamentally the same reality, which is the gospel. They don't have the same goal, which is Christ's likeness. They don't share the same identity, the same objective. So the goal for the believer is to convert the unbeliever. That needs to be made clear. That needs to be made clear. The most loving thing that you can do for an unbeliever is help them come to know who? Christ, your objective has to be clear, but there's no fellowship. We're not going towards the same thing. You're heading towards a different destiny. That distinction needs to be made clear, not clouded out of fear. And you need to make clear that you're trying to convert the unconverted person. There's no fellowship there. There's no goal. There's no destiny. There's no righteousness. There's no Christ-likeness. There's no truth. We don't share that. But the believer instead is trying to convert the unbeliever to know Christ. And the unbeliever needs to know that. John 10 says this, my sheep hear my voice and what? I know them and they do what? Follow me. That's not true of the unconverted. And so you can't lead the same people under the same rule. You're trying to convert the unbeliever. So listen, can I just tell you, all of this to say is we, the church needs a place to, dis, it needs to be a place that distinguishes. That's the very essence of being the church. Those who have been converted are the church. The church is believers. And it eliminates the distinctiveness of the church, but it also is unloving to the lost. And so we need to make clear then the doctrine of what is required in order to enter into the kingdom. 
in order that the church might not be worldly, in order that the lost might know what's required to be saved. And we need to distinguish this and therefore we need to have clarity about it and then we need to hold firm on it. And so I want you to be a people. My church, this church, I want you to be a people who know the doctrine of what is required for salvation and hold firm on it so that lost people know what it is to be saved and the church remains the church. Do you understand? All right. What Jesus gives us here of the conditions is this, receiving the kingdom with childlikeness. That's the condition here. Let's talk about it. Here's the three points that you're gonna see as we divide the text into headings or points which make clear the proposition, okay? The condition for conversion being childlikeness, that's the proposition here. What are the three points that get us there? Or the three divisions of the text? Number one is the situation, verse 15. Number two we'll see is the correction, verse 16. Did I already say 16? I meant 15. The situation, verse 15. The correction, verse 16. And then the lesson, verse 17. And these aren't very difficult to see. Okay, you ready? To make these clear, let's take these points one at a time. And they're gonna lead us to the main point. Number one, what we see is the situation. Look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Now we must note here that since Luke 9.51, we've had little to zero parallel passages with the other gospel accounts. But here we pick back up with Mark and Matthew's teaching. And that highlights a couple of things. First of all, it highlights the significance of this account. But second of all, it, tells, it gives us information as to supplement this text to make it more clear. Okay, let me just tell you, you, you know this, but Jesus taught similar things at different points in his ministry. So you, you and he makes slightly different points sometimes with, the sim, with similar teaching. So you can't always take the same, the similar teaching and supplement it with each other to have clarity on a specific teaching because he might be teaching something else at a different point that's similar, that's making a different point. But the gospel writers also place the teaching in, in places not always chronological. They're not bound to that chronologically. Sometimes they place it in places thematically in order to make, again, slightly different points. So you have to be careful to supplement them with each other, right? The teachings are not always to make the same point. We have to look carefully at the context, the language, the syntax, and determine whether the same point is being made, even if the placement is different. But here we can understand that Luke rejoins Mark and Matthew making the same point, emphasizing the importance of childlike faith for the condition of conversion. You can find those in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. He starts the passage with this. Look at verse 15. He starts it with the word now, if you're looking at the ESV. The NASB says and, and I think that's more appropriate. You wanna know why? Because that helps us to understand that this is linked with the previous section. And is a better conjunction here. And in fact, you could almost take these two passages together, which Pastor Josh taught on last week and what we're seeing here. Last week, right? Mercy, not what? Merit, your religious works fall short, right? Whoever sees himself rightly, acknowledges his sinful condition before God, will be exalted to heaven, right? He just got finished saying this. And now here, he makes clear something that builds upon what he just taught. So he's continuing the same theme. Also look at verse 17. It says, for to such belong the what? The kingdom of God. He's still talking about the kingdom, which tells us he's continuing with this theme, okay? So now, verse 15, go back to it. And... They were bringing even their what? Infants to him. The word even here, it places emphasis on the extent and the scope of Jesus's ministry. They're bringing even their what? Infants. Even the infants are, are being brought to him. This just places emphasis on, his, on the scope of Jesus's ministry and on the, uh, on the extent 
of the people, the type of people that were being brought to him. Even infants were being brought to him, right? And then so we, we move on and it says, though, uh, uh, now they were bringing even their infants to him, the word they there, we don't have clarity as to who those are, but it refers most likely to, who do you think? Anybody know? Parents. Now, we move from not merit, mercy. And then we're moving into this passage of this providential situation that sets up Jesus teaching a lesson. And the situation that's occurring right now are that parents are bringing their infants to who? To Jesus. They, parents, most would assume mothers here. Mothers are bringing their infants to Jesus. But can I tell you, don't be so quick. Because the pronoun that's translated here is them. And it's in the masculine form, which indicates that fathers were here as well. So mothers and fathers, parents, were bringing their infants to who? Jesus. That's what's happening here. And many uh, would, would ask this question, what's exactly happening? But let me tell you, the term infants here in the Greek is brephos, which in the New Testament, it refers to two types, babies, newborns, and in 2 Timothy, it refers to children who are old enough to understand the scriptures. So the people that are being brought to Jesus by their parents are babies and children who are old enough to understand the scriptures. That's what's, being brought, that's what's happening here. And they are bringing them to Jesus. Verse 15 tells us the reason. Now they're bringing even infants to him that, or you could insert so that, which gives us the purpose, he might, what does it say? Touch them. The senses lay his hands on them. You know what they were doing? They were bringing to Jesus their children in order for him to pronounce blessing upon them. That's what's happening. Not to bestow salvation, but parents who wanted their children to grow up in the understanding and the teaching and the nurturing of the things of God. And did you know that these parents knew their responsibility? In Israel, these parents knew their responsibility. This was common practice. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And this really speaks to a few relevant issues. This isn't the main point of the text, but it sets us up for it. First, it sets up, it, it reveals to us the responsibility of parents for the spiritual future of their children. This, this points us, to, 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 this points us to, to parental discipleship. And let me touch on it for just a minute. Ephesians 6, it says fathers, and really only as a representative, because this would point to both parents, are instructed to not provoke their children to anger, but to do what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the parent's job. And the parent's most, the parent's chief concern, parents, listen now, your chief concern, biblically, is a spiritual concern for your child. It's not any other concern than a spiritual concern as the chief concern. It's not for them to be uh, successful in business. It's not for them to be at the best college so you can not be embarrassed in front of your neighbors. It's not for them to be the best athlete. It's not for them to be the best looking. None of those things are your chief concern. If they are your chief concern, you're not living in reality. The chief concern that you should have for your children is a spiritual concern, that they would come to know Jesus Christ and go to heaven and not to where? Hell, because they will go there if they don't know Christ. So parents pray for their children. Well, how does this happen? Listen, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but we have to acknowledge it because it's here. Parents, you must pray for your children that they would receive salvation 
You must read the Bible to your children and explain the scriptures to them. Don't just explain Bible stories. Literally, let them see this book. Let them see you open it and explain it to them. Just do that for a lifetime. The scriptures are sufficient. They'll take care of themselves. Right? Teach the gospel to your children with love and discipline, also not discouraging them by expressing continual disappointment. You're coming along, you can't, don't express continual disappointment without instructing them along the way to get there, right? That's what Colossians 3 points us to. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, right? A parent is praying for, reading. And can I tell you also, a parent is preparing a child for Sunday morning worship. That's part of discipleship. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing through the word of? Your child needs to hear thousands of sermons in their childhood. Thousands. 10,000. And not kitty sermons, but exposition of the word. And that's how faith will come. Don't trust in your, in, you know, trying to make Christianity feel cool or, or, or trying to, you know, attract them to, they need to just hear the exposition of the word. This is God's very words that saves the lost and sanctifies the, the Christian. This is the only thing that does the work. You got to get it into their ears. This is what the parent does. And listen, they should be encouraged while they're sitting in worship. You should tell your child, listen, you should draw one thing, write one thing, Listen, you know, tell me one thing you learned. If, if you're a member here, they have the notebook that's been given by the family ministry. They need to be filling that out, writing that, and, and you need to be helping them. Your parent, as a parent, you need to be reading to them, preparing them to sit still and listen in quote unquote big church so they can do it. And can I tell you by, with love, if your child at a first grade level, which is when we bring them in big church, can't listen to the word of God, it's not an indictment on your child as much as an indictment on your parenting. Don't blame them. A child is literally a manifestation of your parenting. It's a visible reflection of your parenting. And so, of course, there are gonna be hard seasons and difficult seasons. If someone outbursts in here, don't judge them and say, that parent must not be discipling their kids. You don't know what they're going through in that season. But that's the norm. That's the norm, right? And so listen, this is what's happening here. This is what's happening here. And so I heard a pastor say recently, if your children is failing, if your child is failing miserably spiritually, don't be disappointed in them. Be disappointed in yourself. Be disappointed in yourself. That's your job. The second thing that this speaks of, really, is the biblical foundation for child dedication. You want to know a place in Scripture where we base that biblically? It's here. It's the desire, the prayer of, for the blessing of the child's future spiritual life. And this gives us a biblical foundation. This is not child baptism. Baptism happens after conversion, biblically, okay? Okay. But this is a commitment on behalf of the parent and a prayer on behalf of the child for the child to follow God's law for their life. We see that Hannah commits Samuel to the Lord in 1 Samuel 1. When she weaned him, she took him up along with her a, a three-year-old a bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought them, brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And that was to dedicate him. So this points us to parental discipleship towards dedicating a child. And then thirdly, let me just point out this last thing. Because the use of the word brephos in Second Timothy, that it's a child who's old enough to understand the scriptures that could be also be included here. We also have to keep in mind that we should assume that a child being brought who's old enough to distinguish good from evil and understand can and will understand the word of God. They're bringing them to Jesus undoubtedly not only to have a prayer of blessing, but to hear his what? Teaching. And these parents are expecting the children to understand. And parents, you have to expect that of your children. 
You have to expect that they can understand the real word of God. We cannot make uh, the, the, the common mistake of the church, which is that we just have to entertain them and get them to like things. And we end up patronizing them and they don't take Christianity serious. What they need to know is when they sit in this service, I don't know what that dude was saying, but he means it and he believes it right? They need to hear and see the word of God. You need to expect that they would understand it. You know, my child can recite Bible verses, as I'm sure so many of your children can. You got to expect that they can. The other day I was talking rude in my home and, and my daughter came up to me and she said, dad, don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building others up that it may give grace to those who listen. And I'm like, you're right. I'm sorry. She quoted the, the word to me, to correct me. Listen, parents, you got to teach your children the major doctrines of the Bible. You need to teach them and you need to keep them in service. And let me say a word to all of the rest of us. Children are not second-class citizens here. This is what the disciples, the mistake the disciples are making here. And, and so if they're noisy or restless when they're in service, you know what you need to not think? They're interrupting my important life. <laughs> You're just as noisy and restless. You've just learned how to cover it up, right? They haven't learned that art yet. <laughs> so listen, you need to pray for them. Paul Washer, he was quoting John, John Piper recently in a, in a um, podcast that some of us listened to. You know what he said? Let me, this is the last thing I'll say about it. We'll move on. He said, Children need to know that for their parents, everything spiritual is, is also a struggle for them. So when a child says, hey, look, I'm having trouble paying attention, when you're talking about worship service, you need to say, it's a struggle for me too. But I push through it because of, because of what I want from the Lord, which is to know him better. Do you understand that? And you need to know that. Listen, it's not that the pastors in here are some super spiritual people who would never have any struggle with listening to the word, prayer, fighting sin, etc. It's just that the spiritually mature don't take those feelings seriously. They push through it because of what's on the other side. So don't think, well, I'm just never gonna be like that because I just feel all these feelings of restlessness. I never wanna listen. So does everybody else. What you feel isn't always right. Push through it. That's how you'll become spiritually mature. All of this is so important for us to understand. And this is what's happening with these parents. Now we got to move. So stay with me. Verse 15, when the disciples saw it, they make the mistake that I mentioned a couple minutes ago. The NASB uses the word but in the second half of verse 15, describing that the disciples were opposed to what was happening. And so they rebuked the parents. They rebuked the parents and they rebuked the, child, the children. It says, now they were bringing even infants to them that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they did what? They did what? Rebuked. These are disciples of Jesus. That's why they're called the what? Disciples. And then they rebuked Jesus. I mean, they rebuked the parents and the children, right? And let me tell you this, that the word rebuke here is a form of the verb epitomeo, which is a strong rebuke. And it's related to a noun that's often used in the scriptures that's translated in 2 Corinthians 2 as punishment. This is how strong their rebuke was to parents and children. It was like a punishment towards them for them bringing their children to Jesus, Right? And it's used also on top of that in the imperfect tense, which gives this picture of disciples persistently rebuking these parents and their children for bringing them to Jesus. This is the disciples' attitude. Although children were important to the parents and to Jesus, the disciples viewed this as annoying, insignificant. They were angry about it, and it was a distraction. And can I tell you why this is happening? It's because the, fair, the disciples, whether we like it or not, grew up influenced by who? Who do you think? The Pharisees who viewed this, listen, here's what the Pharisees thought, is that because their view of salvation, now we're starting to get into the theme, right, of this passage, their view of salvation is that you get there by your religious 
works in comparison to others and this religious system they thought because children couldn't accomplish any meritorious works that would earn them salvation that they were spiritually insignificant and so Jesus is touching on this issue here of what is required for salvation and it's not a life full of meritorious works now we're getting into it so we move from the situation, that's the situation, to the sec second thing, which is the correction. Verse 16 says this, but Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of, of what? God. So Jesus called them to him. He called for them. And Matthew 19, which is the parallel passage of this in Matthew's account, it's described here as being among thousands of people. And so Jesus is calling out through the crowd, and Mark 10 informs us that he was indignant against the disciples. So imagine this, thousands of people, they're bringing, disciples are rebuking them. Jesus is indignant at the disciples, and he calls for the parents to continue bringing their children, for the children to continue coming. And then he also rebukes the disciples. We know this because there's two aspects of what he says next. There's a positive and there's a negative. The positive is this, let the children come to me. And the negative aspect is what? Do not hinder them. So he gives a rebuke. He gives a command and he gives a rebuke here. And now we see the reason. Watch this. Stay with me. It says the word for, which is pointing us to the grounds or the reason for his command and his rebuke. For, here's the reason. You ready? To such belongs the kingdom of God. The, the word that Jesus uses here in the Greek, it's not um, to these it's to such as these. So what he's not saying is, don't hinder them. These babies, these kids are saved. And he's also not referring to aspects of the issue of babies or infants and whether they die before they're able to understand good from evil, will they enter the kingdom of God, although the Bible is clear that they do. We talk about that when, we'll, when we get to it in the scriptures. But he's not referring to that issue here. Don't hinder them for children that are under, you know, a level of understanding good from evil are in, are in the kingdom of God. He's not addressing that. He's saying such as these. Here's what he's saying. You ready for this? He's saying, let them come for they are more like the ones that enter the kingdom of God than not. In other words, they are closer to salvation than even many of the religious leaders who trust in their works. In other words, the kingdom comes to people like this. Let them come. The kingdom comes to people like this. Now, he's not referring to the fact that you've got to shrink and, and uh, you know, like cartoons again in order to come into the kingdom. He's referring to a spiritual aspect here. He's talking about the kingdom of God. In other words, those who have come under God's reign and rule have been reconciled to God, live under his care with him as king. They've been ransomed from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. They have they've been born again. They're saved, however you want to put it. Those people who are in the kingdom of God are people like this, like a child spiritually. He's making a comparison regarding the types of people who come into the kingdom. And those types of people are like children spiritually. It's children, but in a spiritual sense. It's like Matthew 18 describes, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. First Corinthians 14 uses this in the opposite way, but you see the idea through the metaphoric use of it. It says this, 
Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. That's the idea. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor of, of this idea of being childlike spiritually. He's talking about it in a spiritual sense. First Peter 2 says this, like newborn infants long for spiritual, uh, the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow up into salvation. This is the idea. The spiritual kingdom of God belongs to those who are childlike spiritually, which then learns, leads us to our final point number three, because you might say, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is then just uses verse 17 to just straight clarify explicitly what he means by that last statement. Verse 17 shows us the lesson. This is just the explicit explanation of what he just said at the end of verse 16. And here's what he says in verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is where the whole section is leading. The situation by the providence of God, the rebuke of the disciples, the allowing the children to come, the general statement. And then Jesus says here, look at the beginning of verse 17. He says, truly I say to you. That's an emphatic statement. It accentuates this. this. Listen, it accentuates this point that what he is saying is completely true. What he is about to say, listen, 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 is completely true. And it's not only completely true, but it's a weighty and a vital truth. In fact, this is the, the issue here. Ready? There can be no objections to what he's about to say, and there are no exceptions to what he's about to say. That's how he chooses to start this teaching. And here's what he says. Ready? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall not, what? Enter it. The condition for conversion. You have to understand that you have done nothing to warrant being brought to life. You have done nothing to warrant the life that you have been given. You have done nothing to warrant your delivery into the kingdom. You have done nothing to warrant the love that he has chosen to bestow on you. You have contributed nothing. It was decided before you were born. And you have to receive it with a complete trust in Christ, with utter dependence on the merit of Christ. This is what separates it. Listen closely. You receive it as one who has done nothing to contribute and your complete and utter dependence is on the merit of Jesus Christ, on his life and his death, and his resurrection. This is what separates the believers from the unbelievers. And you might say that you believe in him, but you would still search in your mind for ways to qualify your entrance into that kingdom. True believers say, if God says, what have you done to enter into my kingdom? Say nothing. I don't deserve to be in your kingdom, but Christ died for my sins. Sometimes I think about those I'm sharing with my family and I say, I wonder if they understand the gospel because they talk about Jesus sometimes. And I say, but do they trust in the merit of Christ alone for the basis of their salvation? Or is there any contribution of their own works? It's a willful, also a willful an utter dependence on Christ and a complete, listen, a complete openness to his rule as the father of your life. It's a willful submission to his commands. Childlike faith, you are submitting to his rule. You're gonna live under his rule, his house. You're gonna live in his house. You haven't contributed. It's complete trust in his merit and you're living under his instructions. That's unlike the Pharisee of the, uh, of the previous section and like the tax collector. 
Let me just tell you, you think this might be irrelevant. We just have a few minutes. I was in my neighborhood the other day and I was talking to a, a gentleman who's gone to this prominent Baptist church across town for 15 years. And we were talking, he said, when were you converted from, um, I think he said Catholicism, because I had grown up that. And I said, well, I was converted to Christ. And I told him my testimony about becoming a Christian, because that's what I want I wanted to talk with him about. That's what matters. And he said, well, I, I came to the Baptist church and he said, they asked me to be rebaptized, and I was upset because I'd been baptized as a Catholic, and, um, and why was their baptism any more significant? And he said, but I did it because my wife and I are going to get married. And he said, you know, the way I see it, he said, we all get to heaven through the sacraments. It just depends on which way you go. Some people go this way, some people go that way. And he'd been in this church for 15 years. And I thought, what a tragedy that no one has ever told him what the requirements are in order for someone to be saved. And that he trusts in his works even a little bit instead of trusting, recognizing his sinful condition and fully trusting in Christ. That's the person that is saved. You have to see yourself rightly. You have to know your condition of sin. You have to acknowledge that you fall short of God's standard. You have to understand that salvation is a complete gift. You have to make no contribution in yourself. You are in a helpless, powerless state. You trust wholly in the person and work of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins and justification before God. That's it. And you live under his sovereignty as your father who instructs you with his word. Mark 10 says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Habakkuk 2 says this, but the righteous shall live by faith. That's repeated three other times in the scriptures. That's the idea. So let me close by making one more point. That's important. It's noteworthy here that Jesus says that you must be like a child to come into the kingdom of God. Listen, just closely, we're, we're, we're done. Because the New Testament says other things about being like children. It's interesting. It also rebukes the notion of being like a child. 1 Corinthians 14 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But be, in your thinking, be what? Mature. A childlike innocence from evil, a full trusting in the merit of Christ, but mature. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, brothers, I do not, uh, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. In Hebrews, it says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by practice, constant practice to distinguish good from evil. First Corinthians 13 says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up what? Childish ways. So let me put this together for you. R.C. Sproul says this. Sometimes people say, I don't want to get involved in the complexities of theology and that sort of thing. I want to just have childlike faith. But there's a difference between childlike faith and childish faith. Here's the purpose. You enter into the kingdom of God and you stay in the kingdom of God with a complete trust in the merit of Christ, making no contribution for your salvation, living under his reign and his rule. And as you completely trust in that, you mature in your faith. That's the picture of the Christian life. So don't use it like that. Well, I'm just gonna have childlike faith. All those people who grow and understand more about the Bible, that, that he's referring to an aspect of childlike faith here. And you must grow in your understanding and knowledge. So to tie this all up, Jesus gives a providential situation to continue his teaching on the kingdom. He sets this up by correcting the disciples who try to, bring children, who, who try to stop children. And the point he's making is that 
That's how we need to become spiritually if we're to be saved. And that's by trusting in his merit alone. No contribution for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I just pray that as we close out this service in response, that you would just solidify this truth in our heart. Um, Thank you for this hour that we get to spend together once a week in the word. I wish we had more. I really wish we had more. But do the work of an hour once a week in the life of our church through your preaching of your word to mature this body of believers into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.